All right. If you have your Bibles, you can turn, stand and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Be reading the, um, the first 12 verses. Now there was a certain man from Ramathium Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, And she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And a razor shall never come on his head. Let's pray. Father, we once again are just so grateful for all that you have revealed of yourself in your word. And as we look at this um, old story, God, we know that it is your eternal word and that you have written it, recorded it, preserved it for us to profit from, to be taught of you. And I pray, God, that we would again hear your voice and we would walk in humble obedience to you. By faith. In Jesus' name, amen. I appreciate um, Kelly filling in for me last week while I was in Pennsylvania with my wife's family, all the funks up there. Um, She was a funk. I delivered her from that last name. And um, we immediately got immersed in the culture as soon as we arrived. they have ice cream flowing through their veins. They don't have blood that's ice cream. And 10.30 at night, um, Patsy's um, husband and, 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 and sister-in-law said, well, it's time for ice cream. And we have four flavors and eight gallons to choose from. Just standard fare among the funks. They all have their own. They have a food freezer and they have an ice cream freezer. <laughs> and I am not exaggerating. Anyway, it was a great trip. Um, I 
have, as all of us, if we think about the Old Testament, um, some of the characters, personalities in the Old Testament that, that are probably most prominent to us would be the, the characters of Samuel, Saul, and David. And they are the three primary characters here in 1 Samuel. But there is no book of the Bible that we are to read and come away only thinking about the personalities. Because every book of the Bible is a revelation of God and is meant to specifically bring us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Samuel is certainly no example, no exception to that. It starts here with um, the story of a woman in agony, Hannah. And, and yet, understanding her situation, um, it, it's, it's important to understand the context of her situation. And that is the time of the judges. Not a good time. The time of the judges is very much like the time that we are living in now or maybe approaching. The time of the judges began as a fairly good time with Caleb um, um, being one of the principal figures there. And then at the end, horrific things taking place in the nation. And the last statement in the book of Judges is that during the time of the judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, it's good everybody was doing what they thought was right. But the bad is they were their own determiner of what is right. Everyone did what he thought was right in his own eyes. And so, in other words, they weren't doing what God said was right. They were doing what they said was right. And that can only set up national disaster. We are in much the same time today, where everyone would say, I am doing what I think is right. Who are you to judge me? And we are not living under the authority of God's word, where God has clearly spoken We say, well, that's not what God has said to me. As though somehow we have the right to reinterpret what God says is right. And what God says is right for one person is not necessarily right for all people. Truth is no longer absolute. God never intended it to be that way. During the time of the judges, when everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and the word of God was not the authority over the individual, The nation, because of its sin, was often brought to a place of suffering. And in their great suffering, they would cry out, make their supplication to God, and God would send a Savior, a judge. And once they'd been delivered from their problems, they'd go right back to their sin, every man doing what is right in his own eyes, only to have more suffering, only to cry out to God again, only to have another Savior come. That's the track that the judges is spinning for us. It's a hamster track. It's not a very good place to be. And it's in that day that Hannah is living. It would seem that that cycle of sin, suffering, supplication, and Savior is being um, manifest even down to the individual level with Hannah's own life because she's barren. And they believed that if a woman was barren, it was because of sin in her life. We know that's not the case. But that's what they believed. 
And so because of, and you know Penaniah was saying that. And so she feels that it's because of sin. She is suffering barrenness and the torment of her rival, Penaniah. She cries out to God, making her supplication. And God gives a son who will end up being the last judge of Israel and the one who will anoint the first king and the second king of Israel. Samuel is his name. We're told that, and just the application before I move on, the application there would seem to be that what God, the principles that are at play and how God deals with a nation are the same principles in play with how God deals individually and vice versa. There is, there is a lot of truth to what, to what God says concerning the individual is what God also says to the nation. So if God says to the individual, if you turn away from me, life is going to go hard and you will not prosper, then he says the same thing to the nation and vice versa. So it says that there was a certain man named Elkanah who lived in the territory of Ephraim. Now, if you know anything about how all this plays out, Samuel, the son that God's going to give Elkanah and Hannah, is going to spend his days not only as a judge of Israel, but as a priest of Israel. Well, to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. And it says here that Elkanah is from Ephraim. And it even calls him, at the end of verse 1, an Ephraimite. So that seems to be a problem. But again, God's word never contradicts itself. And he is a God-appointed judge. He is a godly man. And he is not violating scripture by functioning as a priest. Because he is, in fact, a Levite. And we know that from First, Chron- First Chronicles tells us, gives more information about Elkanah and tells us though he was living in the territory of Ephraim, he was in fact of the tribe of Levi. Therefore, his son was a Levite and could function in the temple as a priest. He was a judge, he was a priest, and most significantly, Samuel was a prophet. And one of the things that the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is going to demonstrate to us, as well as 1 and 2 Kings, is the most significant person in Israel was not the political role of king, but rather the spiritual role of prophet. God spoke through the prophets. The only time he spoke through a king was when the king was a prophet. And that, again, is instructive for us because the most significant thing going on in any nation is not what's happening in the, polit- in the political realm, but rather what's happening in the spiritual realm. Having, we know that the problem of why Hannah can't have children is due to Hannah. It is not due to her husband, Elkanah. And we know that because Elkanah proved it by having another wife and having a ton of children by her. We don't know how many. It just says all her sons and daughters. And so she was, in that sense, blessed of God, Penaniah, whereas Hannah had her womb closed by God. And Penaniah stuck it to Hannah often. 
I like to think of her as pins and needles instead of pins and pin and eye. Because she poked, aggravated, irritated, was hostile to her as often as she could, but especially when they went to the temple when the husband was honoring Hannah by giving her a double portion. Aren't family dynamics fun? <laughs> there are no perfect families. We all know that is the case. And as one of my brothers said to me one time, the reason family members know how to press the right buttons is because they helped install them. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth to that. Nobody knows how to get out under your skin quicker, more effectively than a family member does. There is going to be some strife, some contentiousness in every family. The scripture tells us that the flesh and the spirit war against each other. And if you have even one family member that's walking according to the flesh and one family member that's walking according to the Spirit, there's going to be conflict. We need to recognize that. Hopefully it won't last for years. Hopefully it won't destroy the family. But it is common to all because the flesh and the Spirit war against each other. One of the things that I really appreciate, and I can't overstate it, with my wife's extended family, the Funks, is that they have their their tips. In fact, Patsy's dad was one of nine brothers that were all in business together. I don't know how they did it. And they, some of them were very headstrong, especially Patsy's dad. He had the reputation of probably being the most headstrong among them. And they would have their business meetings once or twice a year, and all nine of them would go into a room and close the door. And they would say things during that business meeting to each other that weren't said outside the business meeting. And these calm, gentlemanly men would lay it all out once or twice a year. And then they would come out of the room and never repeat a word of what was said. It's amazing. And I have seen all through the years, no matter how much they may be upset with each other, they are never going to lash out. They're never going to say anything they're going to regret. They're never going to attack each other and tear each other down. It's amazing. And I appreciate it. That no matter how much um, disagreement there may be, you will always be safe with them. I don't think that's a testimony just to being born in Lancaster County. It's a testimony to the grace of God. And it's something that I aspire to, and I think we all should. That we're always going to be, have people in our lives who are not always walking according to the Spirit of God. And we ourselves will be among those. But by the grace of God, to be the kind of people that when we speak, others aren't being wounded in the process. And that we can can say what we say, what, what we need to be, needs to be said on occasion, but walk out of the room loving each other and not repeating it and not hurting others because of our own personal disagreements. 
Hannah didn't live in that kind of home. And you can't read this passage but to just feel for her. The agony, the torment of being in a situation that she cannot escape from. She didn't choose it. Her husband foolishly made this. He loves her, but what was he thinking to take a second wife? Certainly not something scripture could say, said that he could do, but again, every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. And the culture says there's no problem with taking a second wife. If your first wife can't give you a child, take a second wife. What's wrong with that? You're married to her. You're committed. Scripture doesn't say you can't. And everything about it is wrong. And Hannah suffers for it. Verse 6, her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. This wasn't incidental. This wasn't accidental. It was purposeful. Sometimes we have family members like that. And the time that it was worse was when the time it should have been the least. Verse 7. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, in the house of the Lord. It's like Sunday mornings is when I get it the worst from family. Man, I'm not saying that about my family. But that's what was happening for her. At Once a year, they went to the temple. They were supposed to go three times a year, the men were. But once a year, and maybe because, I don't know, maybe Hannah's going, that's all I can take. It's once a year. But that time of year was the absolute worst time of year. It's like Christmas being the worst day of the year. And she wept and would not eat. So Elkanah says to her, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Men are just stupid. Am I not better to you than ten sons? No. (laughs) Obviously not. She shouldn't even answer it. Sometimes women, that's the best thing you can do. Stupid questions. (laughs) Just don't even answer it. It's It's not even worth it. And Hannah rose. And she went to the temple. And she poured out her heart in prayer, weeping bitterly. And Eli, who's supposed to be the man of God, and God is using Eli, he looks at her, pouring out her heart to God, moving her lips but not talking out loud. And people typically, when they prayed at this time, they would pray out loud. And so he sees this woman over there obviously saying something, but no words coming out. And his first thought is, she's drunk. Man, assuming the worst. And so he rebukes her. Are you really going to come to the temple drunk? She goes, and this is where you really see the the brokenness and humility of her heart. Because if it had been me, most of us, and and you have been just charged with something that is so untrue and unfair, grossly so. And I would have bowed up, drunk. You're talking to me about being drunk? I passed by your two sons on the way over here. You have no business accusing me of anything like that. She doesn't do that. She just says, verse 15, 
No, my Lord. I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Not a hint of taking offense. If there's one thing that God has shown me over and over again in my own life and my tendency to easily take offense, it is because of pride. Humble people don't take offense easily. Proud people do. Who do you think you are accusing me of what's not true? Who do you think you are being so self-righteous? Humble people are not quick to take offense. And this is a woman who is humbled. Eli would seem is convicted. Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And God hears Eli. Here's Hannah. And Hannah, once again, just the grace that God is working into her life. Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. She knows the kind of bad priest he is, the kind of sons he has raised. But in the humility and brokenness of her soul, she's saying, may I know your favor and your blessing." So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And then the rest of the story tells us that God gave her a son. And as she said that she would do, she gives the son to God. She had him three years. And when he was three years old, when it was time to go back to the temple, she went back the first time that she had been since she had conceived. And they took a three-year-old bull with them. She had just weaned the boy, and she gave him up. It's an amazing story. And she gave him up, not just to anybody, but to the man whose grown sons are sleeping with women in the temple. So she's moving this son from her protective, nurturing care into something no one would choose for their children. She's giving him up. I can't imagine the pain in that. I forgot to start this morning by introducing two new family members that we have with us today, McCall family, my newest daughter-in-law, Melissa, and her husband, Ryan, our third son, and our newest grandson, who's back somewhere sleeping, Um, Michael in Brooklyn had another son, Ford McCall. And um, we are so grateful. I can't imagine giving up any of them. Children are a gift from God. Each is a miracle. And she has witnessed the miraculous activity of God, the gift of God. And now she hands him over to a man that she cannot trust to raise him the way that she would have him raised. 
So let me just make some observations and applications from what we've seen so far. First, other than this being the time of the judges, did you know that though Samuel will be the last judge of Israel, for most of his life, he was a contemporary with Samson. And both were Nazarites from birth. Samson, the strongest man who ever lived, was judging Israel at the same time that Samuel was judging Israel. That's interesting. And I think God did this to Nazarites at the same time who are in so many ways polar opposites of each other because God is wanting to show a contrast here. And again, what he is showing for the nation as a contrast is meant to be applied individually. Two men set apart from birth to serve God. One man physically strong, morally weak. Samson is totally enslaved to his lust. He doesn't know how to say no to his own passions. And now you have Samuel growing up among men who are just like Samson in that regard, can't say no to their own sexual passions. And little boy Samuel growing up in that midst. And yet he turns out to be a man of purity, simplicity, humility, integrity, godliness. That was the man of strength. Not the man who is going out and doing whatever he wants, but the man who is not doing anything that he would do himself, but trusting God as the Lord of his life. We want to be a strong people. We'd like for our nation to be a strong nation, for our church, our family, individually. All of us prefer strength to weakness. But we don't want is the denial of self that the scripture says is the precursor to God's strength. We want to be strong for ourselves and not to be in weakness, know the strength of God that He alone would get the glory. We're commemorating communion again today. And at the end of the passage where it says, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, he took the cup. It's Paul says, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you have died because you have taken the Lord's cup in an unworthy manner. Weakness, spiritually, comes because of sin. And the nation of Israel is much like Samson. Militarily, they, sh- they would, for all practical purposes, should have been the strongest nation on earth. But they were weak. And they were weak because, they were, because of sin, because they had turned away from God, and they could not stand before their enemies. And God raises up two judges at the same time, one of them who is strong physically and the other one who is unimpressive physically, I would venture to guess. But one of them is weak 
and the other one is strong spiritually. And it has to do with the moral separateness of their lives. One man was living, giving in to his lust, and the other man was living a life of surrender to God. And we can make our choice. And then when God supplies two kings to Israel, the first is going to be like Samson, head and shoulders taller than all the other men in, the, in Israel, morally weak, can't say no to himself. That's Saul. But then God raises up a man after his own heart who is nothing impressive physically, but he can slay a giant because his life is consecrated unto God. That's one lesson here. There's a reason why God had these two judges serving at the same time. With Hannah, you think, how, what, how does God raise up a man like Samuel? Well, part of the answer to that is through mothers like Hannah. She would be a great Mother's Day figure every Mother's Day every year. She was the epitome of both agony, suffering on the one hand, and joyful abandon on the other hand. Can you imagine being raised, even if it was three years, by a mom like that? And she has three years to instill into this young child a heart torn by suffering and a heart filled with the joy of the Lord. Like Jesus. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, Isaiah says concerning Jesus. And yet Jesus says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. If we had had the opportunity to know Jesus in the flesh, we would have seen a man who knew grief better than any of us. And we would have seen a man filled with joy. Who wants to have a mom or a dad that only portrays grief? I don't want to be a part of that family. But neither do we want a mom or a dad that only portrays joy. Because it's joy in the context of grief that lets you know it's truly from God. I'm thankful that with all the imperfections in our home growing up, one thing I knew is that in the problems, and there were many, I had a mom and dad who would joyfully turn to Jesus. From broken hearts, empty hands, great trial, but they would turn to Jesus and find their encouragement and their strength in him. That's the kind of home. It's not a home without problems that God wants to give us. It's a home that in the midst of the problems, in the midst of the trials and suffering, that we as moms and dads convey to our children, we are suffering and it hurts and I'd never want you to go through the same thing. But that's not all there is to my life. I need Jesus. And I will turn to him and find my strength in him. That's what Samuel had in his home. And he could not have had better, a better preparation for being the judge that Israel needed. A man of grief, a man of integrity, 
a man of power, and I think it, much of it was shaped by what he saw in his mom. The Nazarite vow that she put on him and he embraced as his own comes from the book of Numbers. We know it involved three things. Can never eat or drink anything that came from the vine. So that means no grape juice, no wine, no raisins, no grapes. You can't eat or drink any of it. Well, that's a bummer. And that's the point. Because if there's one thing that grape symbolizes, is joy. And so he's not saying you're not going to have any joy in life. But he's saying, I, God, am going to be your joy. And you are not going to derive joy from this world like everybody else around you is doing. You're going to, from birth, learn to say no to yourself. No to finding joy outside of me. And learn the secret of Christ, as we would say in our dispensation, of Christ being your joy. As Paul said, that the Lord Jesus is himself our joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Meaning, the Lord is our joy and our strength. That, I think, was the purpose of this. Is so that it would be impressed upon these people who had taken a Nazarite vow, whether like, like John the Baptist and Samuel and Samson, that it was from birth, or whether it was a temporary thing that was taken on later in life, that it would be visibly and, and tangibly pressed upon them that you are not living life saying yes to everything that comes down the road. But it's a life of saying no to self and finding your joy and your satisfaction in him. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you will deny yourself and take up your cross and come after me. Not eating grapes was simply a way of expressing tangibly and visibly, I am not living for myself. But I will find my joy where nobody else may be finding it, in God himself. They were not to cut their hair. That must have looked interesting. Especially if you were a Nazarite from birth. So Samson and Samuel went their entire lives without a haircut. I'd like to have seen that. We had a Bible school student show up one year, married guy, with hair down to his waist. Beautiful hair. I was a little envious. If I let my hair go like that, it would never grow long, silky, and straight. It'd be, it'd be everywhere. I wouldn't be able to walk through a door. Assuming that his hair was straight, it would have been down. If, if my friend, he had grown, he'd only gone like, I don't know, less than 10 years without a haircut. And it was down to his waist. Hair grows, what, a quarter inch a week. So you can do the math. So at 40 years old, how long his hair would have been? Or at least a really big fro. <laughs> and apparently they didn't trim their beards either. They were not to cut their hair. 
So on their head, and that wouldn't seem to include their beards. What was the reason for that? And just keep in mind, the Nazarite vows were not lived out in a monastery in a cave somewhere. But these Nazarite vows were lived out in community with other people in Israel. So everybody knew what they were doing. And the, the root word for the Nazarite is the word that just simply means separate. And it's not separate from sin and the world per se, but it is separate unto God. And so God wanted these Nazarites to live in community, but not separate, so not separate from people, but separate from worldliness and separate unto God. So live out that kind of distinctive, separate, even what looks to be just ridiculous life among people. And it had to make them look ridiculous. Patsy and I, while we were in Pennsylvania, we went to the Sight and Sound Theater. There's a, the, there's a second one in Branson, Missouri. Largest Christian theater production, I think they said, in the world. And Samson was what they were portraying, what they are portraying right now. And in their narrative and everything, they talked about what it would have been like to have been little Samson going to school with hair down to his waist. Sissy! Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> he would have, just think, from his earliest memories, he would have been ridiculed. But that's okay. Because I am separate unto God. And so again, these people were displaying in their own life how the nation is supposed to live. How we are supposed to live. It will make us look peculiar, strange, even ridiculous to the world to live not doing what we think is right in our own eyes, but doing what God says he wants us to do. When everybody in society is saying, it doesn't matter if you sleep together before you get married. And God's word says, no. You're going to look ridiculous. You're going to look like a Nazarite. But we are the Lord's. We are not our own. We have been purchased with a price. The Nazarite had no right to cut his hair. On the most trivial issues, he had no right. Hannah has no right to keep a child that God gave because it's not her child. And we have no right to our bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. No right to your body. When God's word says, keep your vows. And this is a picture of keeping your vows. And Hannah keeps her vows. Samuel keeps his vow. And we make vows in marriage. And everybody in the world is saying, It doesn't matter. You will appear ridiculous for staying true to your vows. When your own Christian friends are saying, you don't need to do this. We can go on and on. We truly fear people more than we do God. And God would have us to be, as Christians today, 
Nazarites at heart. I will live if God, what God puts upon me through the clear expression of his word, I will accept. What God takes from me, I will give with joy because there's nothing I have except I've received it from God. That's easy to say standing here. It'd be another thing to see God take one of my children or my grandchildren. God took all of Job's in one day. And Job said, what the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of God. The third thing is they were not to touch a corpse. Because throughout the scripture, death comes from sin. And they didn't want to come near sin. That was what was being portrayed. Separateness. Distance from sin. Separateness unto God. Distinctiveness. Where people could look at their lives and see something that was radically different from the world around them. Even the believing religious community that they were part of. Not that they put this on themselves in order to be distinctive. They simply love God. And you can't love God and not look different than the world around you. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And that's going to make you look different. We don't choose to be distinctive. We do choose to be separated unto God. And finally, what Hannah did in giving up her son, we need to remember every good thing is from God. There is nothing that you have that you didn't receive. He gives and he takes away. We have no right to anything. We have no rights. What are some indications that I would not do as Hannah? When I refuse to yield to the clear teaching of God's word on any matter, I should not deceive myself to think I would live as nobly as Hannah and yielding to God in a big matter. When I consider anything to be mine, Money, my money, my time, my possessions, my children, my reputation. Am I really going to give it up? If somebody says, give it up. But if I understand I possess nothing, it is all the Lord's. And God says, give me your time. I go, I never had any time. Give me your money. I never had any money. Give me your children. They never were my children. Much more likely to yield. James says, you ask and you receive not. Because you ask for your own motives. That you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not realize that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? An indicator that I would not do as Hannah is that I love the world and what it thinks about me more than I love God and his word. It makes me an adulterer before God.
hostility toward God. I appreciate Hannah a lot. Appreciate how she lived, how she turned to God, how she raised this young boy, how she would have clearly expressed the grief of life and the joy of turning to Jesus in the grief. May we do the same. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, as I heard someone say just this past week, life is full of grief. But God, there is no greater grief than saying no to you. There is a grief in saying yes because we die to self. But Lord, we know from your word and we know in our own experience that when we say yes to you, dying to self, there is a joy that is indescribable. We don't live for the joy, God, but we do thank you that when we say yes to you, joy fills our hearts in the midst of grief. We thank you that you don't take away the weakness, but you show strength to us in it. In God, we all are so concerned with our nation and the moral weakness that we're displaying. It begins, God, because we've turned away from you. And Lord, we just pray increasingly as our nation chooses to do what's right in its own eyes, that we would increasingly be a people who yield to your authority, your word, humbly, God, not sidestepping it, not twisting it, not making excuses for it, but just saying amen, God. That we would be as Hannah, broken, filled with sorrow and grief, but turning to you, O God, humbling ourselves before you and releasing to you all that you give to us and trusting that in that spirit of contrition and of abandonment that you will influence our children and our children's children and our society at large as we walk before you, God, as you have saved us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.